Hi everyone, thanks for, for tuning into our, our second module. I think that um, that interview really sort of went through a lot of the basis of, of what cause or how cause health approaches uh, evidence-based medicine. I think it's a really, really good episode that gives us a lot of information and a lot of uh, like just such a much, such much better framework for what we can apply to our clinical practice. So I thought it'd be useful to jump on and do another summary. So I think if you've watched the, the lecture I did at the start where we talked about complexity and complex systems theory, I think we'll, we'll see a lot of crossover between course health and that complex systems theory. And that's because course health uh, is based on complex systems theory. It's a different sort of uh, approach to it, but it's still the same basis. And I think probably the biggest basis um, or the, the biggest point to highlight when it comes from our change from how we used to look at or, or still lots of people currently look at evidence-based medicine and this more course health dispositionalism approach is the concept of equifinality or it's literally that, that there's more than one way for a result to occur. A lot of studies that I'm, I'm reading and reviewing are so focused on answering a very specific question. For example, you know, we've got one study at the moment, which is better, heel raises or, or heel raises in someone's shoe or like a, an actual sort of little block that you put in the back of someone's shoe or exercises. So calf raise exercises for Achilles tendinopathy. And it's based upon this assumption that, that you know, the, the recovery really only occurs one way and which is the best way or which is the only way to really go about it. And there's a case of, well, there's many different ways that we can approach how we treat this condition and the question should really be is there which population is it better for is there someone that does better someone that does worse um you know why is this idea of you know in this rct that we need to have one that is better and that's the only one that we're going to do and so it's sort of really locking in with this idea that there's one way or one better way and i think when we think about injuries we think about pain we really think about you know if we've got an injury take, let's take again, Achilles tendinopathy, we know it occurs in sedentary people and we know it also occurs in elite athletes. Um, that those are the two big populations it will occur in. Um, is what's happening to the sedentary person always gonna be exactly the same as the elite athlete? Probably not. The mechanisms are probably completely different and when the mechanisms of how it occurs are different, it's also gonna mean management is different. Are we gonna give an elite athlete, you know, calf raise exercises, three by 10 reps, um, you know, something really quite light and be like, that's going to do you great. Or, you know, are we going to give the sedentary person load management advice? No, you know, it's, we've, but this is kind of that, that process behind it. If we're thinking that things only occur in one way, um, that that's kind of what that thinking locks us into. The other big part of the, the dispositionalism approach is this concept of emergence, that all these factors coming together to produce an outcome. And in dispositionalism, they call that mutual manifestation partners. So the idea that you have something occurring. So let's talk about, you know, lighting a match for the flame to occur. Obviously you strike the match, but there has to be, for that to occur, there's mutual manifestation partners. So there has to be enough oxygen. There has to be wood for then the, the flame to stay, stay, stay light. There's the ignition, so that's the actual uh, event and that's usually what we look at as that cause and effect the event striking the match but there's also things like temperature uh, and other things that don't always just contribute but things that don't block that from occurring so we also think that 
you know, when we strike a match, the match has to not be wet. And when we think about this, all of these things coming together to produce an outcome, it makes so much more sense that there's not one way for something to occur because when we've got all these different things around us sort of building up to this one event, there's many different ways, many different permutations that that can actually occur. We think again, tendon's a good example. If we're gonna overload the tendon, it can either be the fact that we've underloaded it for so long that it has not the capacity. So when a normal event occurs, a normal walk, or two, you know, you can't handle that, or it could be the fact that we are, you know, we've where the tendon is so, so, you know, used so regularly and so strong, but what we're asking of it, the speed, the power, it just can't possibly um, recover in the period of time that we're asking it to, to, to do it repetitively. That could be the problem as well. So two very different ways we've, a tendon has reached the end of its capacity. We also then think about systemic influences and it all goes down and down, down. Ultimately, we're still getting the same outcome, the tendon capacity um, as a sort of model. We're not even sure this idea of tendon capacity is, is correct, but it's sort of as a theoretical model, the idea of capacity has been overdone um, where, where all the, what we're asking for is greater than its capacity. I guess the big thing is that this is always happening in our patients. And while we can repeatedly test um, over and over and over, people in different similar scenarios, every single patient is unique and every single person that comes in has a very, very different set of um, mutual manifestation partners, uh, dispositions, so their propensity to develop um, certain conditions or their propensity to respond to certain treatments. And when we take an RCT, and this is one of the sort of the big sort of issues, and we strip away all of those, um, all of that context, we lose that understanding. So we're really only looking at that one event, that cause and effect event. We're not looking at why it occurs, the mechanisms. That's incredibly useful information, that is, but it's not um, reflecting a real situation. And this is where we start to talk about evidential pluralism and the fact that we need all these different studies to come together because then when we have this RCT that says, look, this cause and effect sort of scenario seems to be um, pretty consistent, um, enough that we need to understand more about who it occurs in and why it occurs in them, that's what we're gonna study more. And potentially it's, it's almost doing the reverse. Usually we're told we study things, you know, in very biased studies, very cheap studies, and then slowly build up. There's also the potential that once we understand that it does do something, there is a specific effect of that treatment that we actually work down and we start to go, okay, so let's reintroduce bias. Let's reintroduce context. Let's reintroduce things in a real scenario that's similar to treatment process. And let's start to figure out based on it going down. We know there's a, specific, there's a level of specific effect. So who does that specific effect occur in? And that's where we can start to potentially identify mechanisms and identify why something happens or causation by going up the, the, the sort of the, the current framework that we have and then actually working down. I think when we look at also how we practice evidence-based medicine, I, I think the, the best, and I'm not sure if I'm completely quoting uh, Roger or not, or, or whether I'm paraphrasing, but systemic, systematically treating patients is just as evidence-based as using evidence directly in their management. And I think that's, that's an incredibly important statement because when we look at the evidence, out there, we don't have a lot. Uh, we think about, so I'm looking at, for example, heel pain's a good good example. We don't have a lot of evidence. In the, in the, the latest systematic review and practice guideline, found there was huge gaps in evidence. Um, 
for, you know, we hadn't even compared um, injection treatments to sham. So there's just, we just don't have a lot of information. And then a lot of the, the, the research that has been done was focusing on, um, well, they didn't have a specific population they targeted, whether athletes or general pop or older people, younger people. There was no real um, distinguishing population. We also, there was also a lot of exclusion. So most studies excluded people with RA, with spondyloarthropathy, um, side effects, previous treatment, surgery. So all these other bits of, of context. And so when we are going to be treating people, we are sort of almost in one respect, or, or a good way to approach it would be looking at them as their own study. So if you're gonna study this person essentially, or you're gonna treat this person, you're going, ah, look, you know, what are we gonna do? So, you know, think about introduction. What information do we currently have? What are the questions that we currently have that we'd wanna answer? So does this patient get better with this treatment or that treatment, or what about them that, that we could potentially try and modify to see the results? And that's kind of what we do. We then say, well, here's your, your treatment. Uh, let's see how you go, come back, recap, and we'll see if we can identify what's going to eventually lead you to the outcome that you want. And I think highlighting that that's just as evidence-based as actually directly using the evidence is incredibly important because if we're focusing on that not being evidence-based, what information do we have? What information do we not have? How do we apply this in the best way possible for this person to achieve their goal? I mean, what are we stuck with then? To be evidence-based is essentially blindly following a study. Oh, this study did this protocol and it seemed to be 80% effective, so I'm gonna follow that protocol exactly. But when we look at evidence-based, like, um, sorry, exercise-based interventions, most studies homogenize, or most high-quality studies, or when we say high-quality RCTs, those sort of things, uh, they have homogenous exercise protocols. So the exercise is not targeted for that individual, not targeted for their sport or their demands, not targeted for their goals. So just by applying that, that exercise program, where are we gonna to get to with that person? How is that going to actually treat them as an individual? So being able to, to look at studies, to be able to look at the, the evidence as a whole, appreciate the evidence as a whole, and then say, these I think are the mechanisms that maybe or may not be occurring. These are the things that um, you know, we need to be you know, careful of, these might be mutual manifestation partners for both good and bad outcomes. So these are the things that we're gonna look at and this is how we're gonna help try and choose our patient um, that, that gets this treatment or match the, the treatment that we have in our rooms, match the patient we have in our room to the treatment we have available. Yeah, that, that, that is the, the best process we possibly can because there is at no point in time, I think we're gonna have enough evidence to be able to say evidence-based medicine is looking for that study. And, and actually just following through. And I think that's what, what Roger said exactly, which is, you know, the, when we, we start to reframe the clinical question from if this person has Achilles tendinopathy or this person has the X condition, we shouldn't be searching for um, how do we reduce this person's pain or how do we eliminate this condition? We should be asking for what is this person's goals and how do we start to actually achieve those. And when our research review, when we're looking at it from an evidence-based perspective, should be focusing on taking that patient, that individual, and looking at all the evidence and seeing how it applies to them and seeing where it doesn't apply, rather than blindly following these studies that just say, this was better than this, so this is what you do for everyone. 
when we're looking at putting it into clinical practice as well, I think the, there's a great quote from Greg Lehman. I saw a comment um, and he says, you need butter to make a fettuccine Alfredo, but having butter is not enough. And this is a brilliant way to frame dispositions is that when we have, uh, by having butter, we have a um, mutual manifestation partner or a, a cause causal um, or an event that occurs in the making of fettuccine alfredo. But in terms of what you actually need for that whole event to occur, you still need the pasta and you need all the other ingredients. And I think that's exactly how we can phrase things like osteoarthritis, tendinopathy. We can see some of these changes on scans and they're required. So you need a tendon change for tendinopathy to occur. You need a cartilage um, degeneration for osteoarthritis to occur, but it's not the sole thing that is required. And so when we have these studies saying, oh, look, you know, that we find um, osteoarthritic changes really common amongst all lots of individuals, we have to then ask, well, what's different about this individual that's developed pain and how do we manage that? Rather than just saying, oh, that's likely not, not gonna be a factor at all. The pendulum's sort of swinging too far the other way. And this is where that right, wrong um, cause and effect um, approach, not a dispositionalism approach, really falls down when we're thinking about evidence-based medicine. When we think about then, you know, injury prevention is another sort of fantastic field, and this is where complex systems theory really sort of, um, for me, sort of gained a lot of traction, um, is that we understanding dispositions, we can understand what, what um, propensities that person has for developing an injury and what propensities that person has for not developing an injury. And the idea is a process of injury reduction. And we say that reduction, not prevention, because we can't always prevent an outcome is what we learn from dispositions. If something comes in, yeah, just an event that we're just, we can't possibly stop or predict. So an environmental event, for example, you know, someone um, gets knocked while they're in the middle of the air, while they're trying to um, catch a ball. We can't stop that from occurring, but we can do all of the, we can address all the other propensities that we can change. So fatigue, lack of strength, um, too much training, um, other sort of psychological or sociological factors, we can understand them and we can start to address those. And ultimately that's the best dispositionalism approach is we're saying, well, these are the things that are going to propensity, have a propensity for making things better or worse. And here's how we're gonna try and manipulate them systematically to then get a better outcome. One thing I don't think we didn't discuss in the, in the uh, talk was this idea of frequentism. It's literally, and I might be butchering this idea um, as well, because like I said, we didn't discuss it, but it's sort of this idea of that if we look at the propensity for something to occur on a population level, so 98% of people or some huge number are going to develop heel pain, a plantar, plantar fasciitis, plantar heel pain, whatever you want to call it. And so when someone comes in to an appointment and they have heel pain, what the population data would say is it's more likely than not that that is plantar heel pain. However, we can't always then just say there's a 98% chance that that person has their pain as heel pain. We can't, while that population data suggests that, that individual we have to look at as an individual and we have to say that is like, what does this person have in terms of mutual manifestation partners? What are these propensities for this individual to develop heel pain? 
because that person in front of us might have none of the propensities for developing heel pain. They might, they might have nothing at all that suggests that it's heel pain. And then if we take this approach that it's 98% likely that this person has heel pain, it's completely, it actually isn't the case at all. This person is probably incredibly unlikely to have developed heel pain. That is the typical sort of plantar heel pain, plantar fasciitis, because they are 10 years old, for example. And so immediately that assumption has to change because the mutual manifestation partners are different. That's a child. It now becomes immediately more likely to develop uh, severs or calcaneulopophysitis. Um, they're physically at a point where developing plantar fasciopathy, plantar fasciitis, all those sort of um, whatever name we want to use, is immediately not there. They don't have the physiological sort of basis to develop that condition. But that's how we approach a lot of our patients. So being evidence-based is also about understanding, I think, that because when we're just taking these blanket figures and saying it's most likely this because, well, that is the most likely condition and it seems to have these factors, we often can put our blinkers on for other factors. So while that example of that 10-year-old is quite extreme, we do that in a lot more nuanced ways. Oh, this person um, isn't getting better with, um, with, this treat with this treatment that is we find for knee osteoarthritis, 75% effective. So there's a 25, there's a 75% chance that, you know, this treatment, they may not have the osteoarthritis or they're not getting better, or it sort of muddies the figures when we could look at it and say, well, hold on a second, there's 25% of people that um, don't get better from that treatment. Um, and what is it about that 75% that got them better? What is that 25% that didn't get them better? And before we start applying these treatments, can we actually start to understand why, you know, what about them could precipitate a good outcome or a bad outcome. And so we can start to get a much, much more nuanced in the way that we apply things. So we're also not just why, how some people practice, which is throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks. Well, we want to look at sort of dispositions in, in practice a little bit more and specifically in our patients. I think Christine presented a really, really um, good case for them because what she's essentially sort of explaining, identifying is that she had propensities or things that, that increased her pain or had the propensity for increasing her pain, more stresses. She had um, dispositions or propensities or mutual manifestation partners for developing less pain. And really what she was doing is she was doing over time a study on herself and saying, what are these things that we, that, that are increasing my pain, what are the things that are decreasing my pain or have the propensity to, and how do I influence them in myself the best way possible to, to ensure that I am, you know, having a level of pain that's tolerable while also still able to, you know, do the things in, in my life that I want to do. And I think this is an incredibly powerful example because it shows us the way that we can use dispositions for our patients specifically and especially those ones with conditions that we, we struggle to manage, persistent pain being one of them. We don't have causal information to understand exactly why those stresses um, or why those factors work exactly the way that they do to increase or decrease our pain. We have theories and ideas, but we also don't need that causal information. We can understand that, that when we work with the patient and we start to help them explore these factors that we can still find, and when we do it systematically, we can still find ways that we can then do it. Um, we can then achieve these goals. What, um, 
is really, really helpful, and this is where the evidence really comes in, is that we know we do have evidence to guide us to say that stress, sleep, other psychological or sociological factors have influence on pain. What we don't have is the causal information that says, if you do this to this, if you do this exact treatment, if you give them this pill, if you give them this, that, the other, you will get this outcome. So we, the evidence tells us where we need to look. It doesn't tell us exactly how to achieve it exactly in our patients. And there's definitely evidence that gives us guidance. There's definitely evidence that gives us um, ways we could approach it. But ultimately our, our, our role and is to help the patient guide them through this sort of systematic appraisal of themselves and help them sort of decide what's gonna make it propensities more or less for their outcome. I think Christine explained that incredibly well. And I think if we're looking at exploring that further, I think Christine's chapter in the, in, um, the book, which I've shared as, as at the end of, of this course, is an incredibly good read because it really goes into detail the process that she took to actually get there and also the, the the she explains it a lot more in detail and gives a lot of metaphors or analogies for how we can explain it to our patients and I think that can be incredibly helpful in specific situations where we go and it's not just in persistent pain we can say well look you know this is the thing that you know these are things that might lead to more injury here's things that don't lead to more injury Here's the things that are more likely to get you better. Here's the things that are going to influence the, your, your, you know, make it less likely that you're going to get better with your return to running. We can use the same sort of ideas, the same sort of basis presented to our patients as a way of explaining how things work and utilize that as a way of trying to influence them to have a better outcome using the evidence that we do have and using our understanding of that person to guide them. I hope you've enjoyed the talks so far. I think this, like I said, this is a this is this module. I think is incredibly helpful in terms of understanding the approach. And then obviously, if there's any questions, queries, or anything about the information that we've covered, please comment. Let us know. More than happy to to uh, elaborate or expand, um, or as well as even you know talk to any of the guests that we've had. And, and if we have big burning questions, bring them back on to answer them.